as if organizing the biggest cocktail week in the world isn't enough. My two guests have created the Michelin Guide for the Drinks Industry. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. More than 10 years ago, Hannah Sharman Cox and Siobhan Payne joined forces and made London Cocktail Week what it is today. Every cocktail lover's favorite week of the year, including mine. It's been running continuously every year since it began. They didn't even let a small thing like a global pandemic get in the way. Now, in addition to that, they have co-founded the Pinnacle Guide, which will be champion excellence in bars around the world. How did it all happen? That's what we're here to find out. But before we begin, you know you can always watch this podcast on YouTube, where you'll find a video of this episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, let's join Hannah and Siobhan. Well, it's really great to have you guys here, finally, after so long that we've been trying to do this. We have been trying to do this for years, so I'm sorry it's taken this long to get us on here. Well, we did have a global pandemic in between, so we have to. if um, we cut out those three years, it's like it's been no time. I just asked perfect. you five seconds ago. So why don't we start with Hannah? Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got here? It would be a pleasure. Thank you. I did have a job before drinks, but I said... <laughs> I don't really remember very much of it. It's blocked it all out, really. I actually trained in something completely different. I trained to be a dancer. Oh, boy. I worked for a little bit. It was all right. Worked for a bit. But I, while I was in, I was living in the States. This is, I've told this story, but I'll tell you again. All right. Wait, so, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Obviously, you're English. I can tell from the accent. But can you tell me where you were born? Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, I was born in Leon C in Essex. Okay. Which is just south of London perfectly nice little town down on the coast and I left as soon as humanly possible when I turned 18 about the doors. To be a um, dancer? To be a dancer yeah exactly and then from college so professional training my first job was over in the states and I lived in South Carolina which is fairly niche as it goes of all the towns you can live in all those states you can live in. I love hearing Hannah's stories about her time in South Carolina. It's fascinating. Oh my god! It's for another. It's probably for another day, but it's definitely for another day. And it was decades ago, so it says <laughs> even more about about hopefully <laughs> what it's changed to be like now. But yeah, so I was living over there. The age-old story goes, and this is honestly true. I was reading a magazine because it was in the days before you had any kind of computers to read magazine articles on, and I was reading an actual magazine about milk and honey in New York. I was reading all about it and I was reading about Sasha's ethos and kind of what he was what he was doing with the club on Elridge Street. And it said at the bottom, and it's opening a venue in London. And I thought, being that I was really, really tired of hopping up and down for a living and putting all my clothes in suitcases every literally every day to sit on a bus and go somewhere else, I thought, I know I'll go and work there. And I did. And that's pretty much how I got into all of this. So I went and knocked on the door and the general manager at the time was a really fantastic woman. We're still pals. 
And I said, can I have a job? And she said, do you know anything about it? And I said, no, no, don't know anything about it at all. But I'd really like a job. I'll do anything you ask me. And so because I'd had drama training, they were like, you can answer the phone and make it sort of sound a bit seedy. And I was like, yeah, that'll do. That's perfect. That's a perfect job for me. So good evening, milk and honey became my calling card for that. <laughs> I was with that company for, I think, five years in the end. I was there with them and did so many of their openings. It was, it was just like, what a crash course into the drinks industry. So at the time, Dale DeGroff was director of drinks. Uh, Dick was around. Sasha was in London with us opening the venue. It was a, just amazing, amazing time. And so many of those alumni are still pals, thankfully now, but also peers and colleagues and you know, sounding boards for us, for Shiv and I of what we do. So it was an amazing, amazing time. And from there, I met Simon Difford. He was a member at the club, which is how I knew him. And I went to work for him and then I was there. And then you can flip over to the other one because that's where Siobhan and I met. Okay, wait, wait, before we get on to you, Siobhan, hold on. Now, what do you think it was about Milk and Honey or reading that article? What really sparked your interest or that that said to you, I want to be there and I have to be there now because I think this is going to be great? I really loved the house rules. So it's very old fashioned and lots of, lots of people have copied them since, but I really loved that ethos that a gentleman must remove his hat. He won't approach a lady. It was, it was just, it was terribly sweet and quaint and it just felt, it felt exciting and it felt unusual and it felt like such a stretch away from what I'd ever known going out for, for beer was. It just, I don't know, probably it felt a bit theatrical if I'm honest, you know, it's, it's all dark and curtained and you step in. It was, it was very dark. It tied those two worlds together. Anyway, I just, I was completely, completely sold. Then the level of education we were all given was just unreal because all those people were involved and they were all there at the time. That, that kind of key, it was about 2002. So it was, you know, there were some great cocktail bars opened, but there were some great cocktail bars to come. And so it was really at that, cruxy point of it of cocktails really becoming back into the London psyche certainly and were you a cocktail drinker or maker before no no I wasn't old enough to be honest like that's with complete complete honesty I wasn't old enough or cultured enough to know that that even really existed wasn't very hot in Leon C if I'm honest <laughs> at the time <laughs> no I used to get dragged down at the end of shift and made to drink a gin and tonic with the manager, which I thought was horrible at the time. And obviously, after seven of anything, you think it's delicious. And that's what we did. And yeah, and then, and then you learn, don't you? you know, when, you're, when you're completely, completely encapsulated by something, you, you learn. And now I can just about make about three drinks if pushed. But Very well, drinks. actually. I would. Yeah, in. really good at that, at that one martini that I can make. That's very important. It's very important to be good at making the one drink you love. Exactly. Uh, now, Siobhan, <laughs> on to you. Where did you grow up and how did you get here? So I grew up in Bromley, which is in southeast London. Again, I didn't start in the drinks industry. I got a degree in politics and economics, of all things. And then when it came to leaving university, I had, didn't have a clue, as I, I suspect a lot of people feel. <laughs> um, so Definitely. I didn't get a job. I moved to the Alps and was a chalet maid for quite a long time and did that 
And when I got back, I have to say, I just fell into PR because I thought it sounded quite fun. And I worked for an agency. Again, I just emailed 20 agencies. Just, I didn't have a clear idea about what industry or anything. I just was like, yeah, PR, that's quite fun. That's about speaking to people and you can just get on with it. And it just so happened that I got a job at a PR agency which had a drinks team. And whilst I hated, truly hated PR, from the day one, I hated it. I loved the drinks industry. And actually, some of the clients that we were working on were really, really cool and fun. So um, we were working on lots of big brands, but some small brands. We worked on Rumfest. And I just fell in love with the industry itself. Then I just didn't know what to do because I was like, well, I really like the drink side of it. I really hate PR. It really, it really is a special skill for someone to be. And I, I, I'm so respectful of, of that skill to be able to be a, a good PR. But I didn't really know what to do. But just so happened that my manager at the PR agency was Simon Difford's partner. And she introduced me. She knew how much I hated it which, and how much I loved the drinks industry. And she, so she introduced me to Simon. I was like, you should hire her. She's really nice, but she hates the job she's in at the moment. Bless her. So that's when I met Hannah. It's as simple as it. It was so fair. And we had a very awkward first date, chaperoned by Simon. <laughs> at the Hyde in Bermondsey Street. And we were introduced, it was such, it was so weird. It was like a little arranged marriage. And we were sort of paraded in front of each other and asked if we thought the other one was nice. And that, that was a job interview, really, wasn't it, Shakespeare? So Hannah and Simon had just started London Cocktail Week. They'd just done the first year. And at the same time, Simon did kind of want a little bit more support with the, the, the promotion around Difford's Guide. And so that's why he... Needed someone to be Hannah's right-hand woman. And so I stepped in and the rest is history. That was nearly 13 years ago now. And we've worked then side by side ever since, which has been a joy. Yeah, a match made in heaven or a match made in cocktails, I guess. Now, true love. Uh, true love. You know. Absolutely. Because <laughs> that, that could have gone so wrong, but it was, yeah. it was just meant to be. Now, what was, Hannah, what were you doing then? What was, what was Simon doing with Differds? Was it Ooh. quite established then? Yeah, it was really established. So I joined him, supposedly, still rib him about this, to write for his magazines. So he at the time was publishing a quarterly magazine, Differds Guide Quarterly, just say what you see. And, uh, <laughs> and I came in to, to write for him. And within about four minutes, of me joining, leaving my job, joining his team. He was like, yeah, paper publishing's dead. I'm closing the magazine. And I was like, oh, this can't, I want, I want to be a drinks writer. That's all I, really, truly, that's what I decided, the path I wanted to go down. He was like, no, no, don't worry, because we'll do something else. Of Like, you know. I don't know how well you know Simon. He's a glorious human being that is one of the most driven people you will ever meet. And he's always got a brainwave. So he had a brainwave. He was already publishing the cocktail books. I think we were on number five, yeah. six, something like that. So it mm -hmm. dates it back then. But in the same breath, he'd met Rob Cooper, 
And Rob Cooper had just launched Saint-Germain. Okay. And Simon and I, and Dan, who's the other guy that actually still works for Simon, were helping promotion market PR that. So I also hate PR. Can't stand it. We lit- <laughs> we know you had a lovely conversation with them. <laughs> With the Alexes the other day, they're so good at it, and it's not for us. We're a lovely little force. Tell them all the time how glorious they are, for, for how excellent they are at that job. Anyway, so we, <laughs> so Simon was like, "Let's la- we'll help Rob launch this," and so we did. And then that kind of became running a PR PR within Simon's business, which was again sneakily why he wanted to hire Shiv because he was like perfect. So then, and then that rolled on, and we ended up Shiv and I did the launch for. Jake Burgers, Gin, Portobello Road. We did that PR launch. We did Alex Cameling's launch for his product. Two people that hate PR and didn't want a PR agency, but we did seem to be doing that, as well as helping on the books, editing, writing, bit of sales sponsorship, just a, like just a little bit of everything, really. And it's that's very indicative of of Simon that it's like if you're good and you're capable, just try something else and keep right. going. He's very he's very generous like that, actually. Which is how Cocktail Week happened. He was like, you like doing events, go and do that, which is what happened. So what kind of what form was London Cocktail Week yet? Was it already established? Had you done it? Had they done it at all or was it just an idea? No, no. So, um, no, it was it was a fresh uh, idea, although, I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's having a lovely time in a city for a week. Uh-huh. We'd been going backwards and forwards to Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. And the, I mean, it's Tales is, was, continues to be fantastic. But New Orleans itself is hot and sticky mm-hmm. and the drinks are really sweet. And so Simon said, why don't you do this bit in London, make one in London? And that was literally the germ of the little idea. And that was that would have been about 2010. So the first one was 2010. So it might have been, might have been the year before that he sort of started it going. And then, yeah, from that, it's just grown. And I remember, I remember I, because I, at that time, was working on Rumfest. And I remember going into a meeting about Rumfest as a very, very, very junior member of staff. So I didn't really have a clue what on earth was going on. But they were saying, and there's a new thing, and it's going to be called London Cocktail Week, and Rumfest is going to be associated with London Cocktail Week, and it's all going to become part of the ecosystem in October and a big, big thing. And actually, even that was part of why I just love the drinks industry. So I was like, yeah, like there's a community, and we're all in it together. And, and so it's quite nice that one year later, I was part of that team. It was a great opportunity because... Because that collaboration, as always, and that's still our, Shiv and I work by this all the time. More heads are better than none. Pile in, like collaboration is is really important to us. So actually there was a sit down meeting with Ian from Rumfest and Sukinda from Whiskey Show. And we, ta- we all sat down with calendars and timed it all. And actually the same with Helmut Adam, who was running BCB at the time. We were on the phone with him and, you know, it was a real time. Then 50 Best launched the year after. They came to us. They were like, can we put this in Cocktail Week? We were delighted. So it was, a, again, it was, a, it was a real, like, halcyon days of all this stuff being in its infancy and everybody just doing their best and trying it out and nothing being too sensible because nothing was that well established. Mm-hmm. 
and just picking up the phone as well and kind of just giving it a go. It was, it was good. It was good. Yeah, the creative process of anything at the beginning is so exciting. Now, you had the idea. You're like, okay, we got this title, this London Cocktail Week thing we're going to do. Can you just talk us through a few of the experiences you had starting it, maybe the first year to maybe the third year, how it grew, what was different along the line, what you saw and how it changed? Well, the first year it was tiny. It was tiny, tiny. And it was all based on mates, basically, because didn't truly, again, no training in any of this, just a bit of chutzpah and, and prepared to pick the phone up and be told no. So it was, it was just, a, you know, it was 50 bars, which is still quite a lot, but yeah. it was 50 bars run by 50 mates. So that was easy. And then a few sponsors who I don't think paid any money. Well, they definitely didn't pay any money. And some wristbands that nobody paid for. It just was very, very charming. Should we use that word? And then... <laughs> yeah. We didn't charge any sponsorship no. years, did we? No. It was good business. <laughs> no. At all. I don't know. Yeah. Because we didn't charge for wristbands or for sponsorship. No, we didn't make any money at all. No. Which is why Simon was like, I've had enough of this now. Quite rightly so. <laughs> we didn't really spend any money though as well. Everything was in favour. So apart from obviously our own time. but And then Shiv joined. I de- you definitely brought structure to it, Shiv. Much more than I would. I was just ad hocking about like some kind of lunatic. But Shiv, as- Shiv is way more commercial and structured than I am. She's much better at all that stuff. So. Well, that's a little bit. Simon helped me become that because he, as you know, he's a very open book in a way. And so he basically said, well, if you're not going to do PR, which he, does, he had discovered that I hated, if you're not going to do that, then you have to like make the business some money. Otherwise, you don't have a job. So then I was like, right, <laughs> okay. Could you <laughs> week and um, maybe you could sell this part of the website and blah 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 so then and I realized actually the commercialities of it was the bit that I do like mm-hmm. of the kind of selling and that sort of thing so maybe I, I suppose I maybe pushed a bit of structure on you, de- the- you definitely pushed structure on it then Siobhan's other genius addition to it which was when we got to year five about that year six maybe was the the formal introduction of the Cocktail Village, which oh, yeah. was single-handedly yeah. the best and most stressful, horrendous, bleep-reducing yeah. thing we've ever done. But again, that was shit. Well, we just, again, it was a commercial thing and just growing the festival, which it definitely did. So we'd, we'd historically been putting pop-ups into empty retail in Covent Garden actually and the demand for those pop-ups the pop-up spaces was getting really high I think because again we didn't there was no commerciality of that or we were just it was all just it was a different time yeah yeah different time (laughs) definitely relaxing time actually and so we decided we we should take a space and buy and sell space and and create kind of this this village that wasn't an actual village that was just of cocktails and that's where that came really because we had we just wanted to take it up a level I think that was 2015 2015 right 2015. that was in that was in Spitalfield Market right yeah so we were like where's Iconic which has been our basically 
by the way, been our secret mantra all the way through this. So when we very first started, our first Cocktail Week Hub went into Selfridges because we were like, where's iconic? Selfridges is really iconic. Let's call Dawn Davis and say, can we have, can we take over one of your bars? Which she said, yes. And we did that for two years. And then we were like, where's iconic? Covent Garden's really iconic. Let's phone them. So we went there. And then we were were over in East London. We were like, where's iconic? This is nice. And it was not, again, it was, this is years ago. And it was all empty. And it was, you know, very, it was just scrappy market traders. There was no infrastructure there at all. And we said initially, do you remember that we would just take half of it? I said, I said, was it? No, we said, I remember because in Spitalfield, you can go up onto the terrace right. around the, the main space and you can look down. I remember being like, right, okay, so we've got this third and we worked it out and it was all affordable. This third. And so, and I was like, it looks quite big, but I think we can sell that space. No problem. You know, we, ju- we just about balanced it all. And then we were like, you know, if we take another third, it's much cheaper per meter. So actually, we probably could sell that and then make more per meter, blah, blah, blah. Let's maybe do that. And this is all in the same 10 minutes. And then we were like, but then if we're taking two thirds, then is it going to be a bit weird if then we've got the normal market traders down the side? Like, is that going to be a shame? Because if we take the whole thing, then maybe we could put a little bit more infrastructure around it and some fencing and that sort of thing. So we're like... Yeah, all right, let's let's just take the whole thing, which then became ever so st- stressful because we'd never done it before and it's an enormous space. And when you when it's empty, you're like, oh my God, there's so much. A, then there's so much space to sell and then B, there's so much space to activate. But it was a real success from the beginning, actually. And we would have stayed there forevermore, but they changed their structure and they put, a lot more infrastructure into the space, yeah, which meant that we didn't have the space to activate ourselves. So that meant we had to move to Truman, which is also a brilliant space, but slightly less iconic. So it just became a slightly different event when we were there. And the people who attended from the beginning to now, have you seen a change in that kind of person? Was it all industry like the first year or, you know, was it just regular cocktail lovers it's been a bit of a journey to be honest because i think obviously when hannah and simon did the first one i think you you assumed it would just all be trade um definitely i thought it would just be my mates as you said you know you had lots of people that weren't just your mates that were just normal people that you didn't recognize yes some woman from somewhere come to get a wristband and i was like how why do you care and they really, really, really cared really urgently, which is great. We love that. And some of the people, they're still coming from year one. And a lot of them, have, it's really gross. Some of them have still got wristbands. And like, oh, you've got them. And you're like, put that in the bin. Right. <laughs> that is a health hazard, isn't it? You can imagine what other stuff they have. Oh, I don't want to know. Um, and it, Actually, it's a pertinent question of who comes because it's something we've been really, we've really taken quite a lot of time over this at the moment of, of like, what is, the, what is the point? What is the purpose? Who is this for? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that question that we've been asking, who is this for? It's really interesting because so much has changed since 2010 mm-hmm. and not just the people that drink cocktails. It's much more mainstream now than it was then. Before, I, 
at that time, Hendrix did a pop-up and they were persuading people that gin actually was, and people were like, oh, I'm not sure. And that, and that was kind of at, at the cusp of when then the gin craze, as, as they call it. So not, but not only that, it's also the kind of throwaway ability of a movement. So for the first half of the life of Cocktail Week, we, we were getting kind of a lot of the same people every year and they were coming back, coming back. And like Hannah said, we've still got those people. And as we've grown, we're getting people that are kind of, they love cocktails right now, that the Instagram generation, they want to take a picture. It's all kind of, yes, which has, has its value. But actually, we love the people that have been coming since the beginning or the, or the people that come in every year. And it's just because they love cocktails and they love the craft and they love bars and they love hospitality. So that's where... It's interesting to us because there wasn't Instagram when we were doing it before for ages. There wasn't even Facebook. I remember we were like, oh, we should probably do a Facebook account. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that because I have one at university. And that was as far as it went. And now most of our marketing is on Instagram. And we're spending, you know, loads of our marketing budget on creating little videos of people having a nice time in a bar. And it's like... It's insane that the, the change across all of it when you look back over 14 years of a festival. Absolutely. I know when I started my podcast, uh, so it's about uh, 2015, I started interviewing people. I remember going to a PR and saying, I'd like to interview your bartender. Oh, it was a PR of a hotel. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? Why? What is this? And where are you going to film? And I was like, no, it's a podcast. And what room is good? I was like, it doesn't matter as long as it's quiet. I mean, she couldn't get her head around that I wasn't going to film it or that it was, it was a podcast. So, you know, and now that I think there were 250,000 podcasts, now there are 5 million. So, you know, that <laughs> that COVID TikTok, you know, it's yeah. in such so a short time. adopters over here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I understand. But, you know, it's great is that once if TikTok goes away, you still have, you know, I think a... a, a some kind of fire has been lit inside cocktail lovers. You have the ones who are cocktail lovers before there was a craze, and then you'll have the ones who don't care about TikTok. They just want to have a good drink and have a wonderful week to celebrate. You know, I think that that will always be your core group. There's just more of them now. We really hope so. And, I, and that's, you know, that responsibility is on us. And then that gives us something new to think about, which is great after all these years. But actually... How do we speak to those people? How are we resonating with those people? Where are those people already drinking? How can they be? How can they come up the, the mm -hmm. chain of like better, better, better uh, experience, better, better quality of experience, more, more than just uh -huh. a drink? What can we layer on? And then, and then that gives us something new to go away and think about with a blank piece of paper to be like, okay, what is the future of this festival? Why are we inviting people to come to London? What's our, what's back to what's our purpose? And so we're delighted because 2020, what is it, 2023 is the year of reinvigoration of finding our tribe. Yeah. And I think that London Cocktail Week has always so, has had so many fantastic sessions that you couldn't find anywhere else that are open to everyone. It's different from just making a cocktail, like, oh, may learn how to make three cocktails in a bar for both the cocktail nerd and just someone new to it. There's tons of choices over that week. All of that kind of brand partners, which is just 
we're just so fortunate you know we're now so ingrained in the infrastructure that our you know every year the brands come with more ideas and more freshness it's it's you know we're fantastically lucky that people still take it seriously enough to make sure that there is that content for all those different types of people and it's really nice actually because i think the our relationship with our brand partners is really solidified over the over the covid years to be honest because obviously during that time the festival was very different it was a question of whether it would run at all it did run both years all within the rules and all as part of kind of supporting the industry and the london bar community and so it's nice those relationships have really grown and it's a really collaborative process to come up with those activations and that activity that we do want to speak to people at a level that they want to be spoken to we don't want to be condescending Mm -hmm. we don't as exactly as you said you know we don't need to be doing basic masterclasses about making mojito we don't need to do that we you know people can do that they can watch youtube and that's great to get the, the 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 real masses into it but actually some consumers really really want to learn about ice quality and and more exploratory techniques and it's important to us that we speak to people at that level too yes and coming out of covid i was lucky enough to be a participant in london cocktail week with my lush life book club for the month tell me about creating a whole month of cocktails why and why is a good question I meant, I I can tell you what I think, but I want to hear it from you. I was sure that I felt like it kick-started life again. So thank you for making it a month for me. But why don't you tell me why you did a month, you decided to do it for a month? There were so many reasons, to be honest. It just, it it made complete sense that first year. And we were talking about it the other day. We really look back on those two COVID years with incredible pride because we just had a conversation a continuous we are in continuous conversation just to be clear we we were just we had a meeting we were in continuous conversation we were like we mm-hmm. have to do this we have to make this happen we were getting calls from our friends saying we're really struggling this covid thing is really screwed over and we felt that we wanted cocktail week to be something that was a little bit of a life raft both for the bars also for the brands who had money to spend to be honest and they had money to spend to support the bars but they kind of needed an infrastructure in order to do that so the month thing came out of a the bars needed a month of support to have Mm -hmm. people being driven into the bars for a whole month to have brand money going into those bars in the activations for a whole month b it was the safe thing to do because Pre-COVID, we'd have 25,000 guests plus. And if you're putting all those people into the bars of London in a week, that's not very COVID safe. Yeah, so that's where we got to with the month the month thing. Then the second year, people loved it then as the month because it was a whole month of offers and the bars really liked the support. The next year when we did the month, because the more of the event side of things were back because interaction was more part of it everyone also the opening hours were longer opening hours yes year one was a 10 o'clock curfew 
which we loved. We love an early night. <laughs> but yeah, so then by the second year, everyone was ever so tired by the end. All the bars and all the brands. And, it, and we, you know, all the consumers love it. It took quite a lot of careful messaging to suggest that we were going back down to, to a shorter length of time. But the bars and the brands were like, we're Hannah and Siobhan, we're so tired after this month. Please, can you make it a week again? We've come out at a bit of a happy medium. So we now are ever so catchy 11 days. We're glossing over and just keeping with week. So we run Thursday to the following Sunday, which gives two weekends. So it's enough of a carrot. It does, it's not just one weekend. It's a little bit better value than it always used to be, but without writing people off for the months afterwards. Absolutely. What do you all think now when you see cocktail week? I'm using that in um, in uh, rabbit ears or quotes. Cocktail weeks all over the world. I mean, you guys pretty much started this whole cocktail week craze. I mean, literally every town in Italy now has a cocktail week, which is great for me. <laughs> and I love it. It's a lot of fun. Almost without exception, we're so proud <sighs> and so delighted because... Number one, you cannot, you cannot run a cocktail week if you're not local. We swear by this fact. You cannot roll into someone else's city and tell them how it's done. Right. Because you don't know the setup. We've lived and breathed, lived and breathed the London bar scene yep. for decades. So hence, there's no way we'd go to someone else's city and try and show them how it's done. The great thing that's come out of COVID, actually, is the amount, the ability to talk to everybody all around the world. And so quietly, and we're not we're done very much with this yet, but just quietly in the background, Shiv and I have set up the Cocktail Week Collective. So completely not for any purpose other than a support system for all the people all around the world who run their own Cocktail Week. Because it's an enormous responsibility with no blueprint, really. Well, we're the blueprint and we've certainly learned by doing. So what we felt was that if we could have a place where all these people could connect, invite other people to yours, invite, be invited, cross-pollination of thoughts and ideas. And like, with complete transparency, we haven't done very much with this yet, but it, the, the more than the thought is there, the, the collective has begun and there's, it's maybe like 10, 12 people have come in. Yeah. Maybe more. Yeah. More over. So from India. Yeah, it's nice. We, we, feel, we feel happy when we see another cocktail week. When we feel the happiest when people reach out and say help. Uh-huh. Because we, we, you know, we would have a conversation with anyone if they wanted to start their own. We would happily have a conversation with anyone. No, no like non-commercial conversation, just as like peer-to-peer advice. And sometimes you, you see Cocktail Week setting up and you're like, oh, no, why have they done it that way? That's a shame because actually if they could have just picked up the phone and spoken to us, that would have been for their uh-huh. benefit. But on the whole, we do get calls from people wanting to set up their own and we are open to, to chat. Like we're in the next few weeks' time, we're going to Munich Cocktail Week, which is called Cocktail Eck. So Eki, who started that, reached out and was like, can I just chat it through? We said yes. And he was like, why don't you come? We were like, all right, Munich, great. And we'll go and see how he's running his cocktail week. 
yeah. So yeah, it's it's flattering. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Now there's another big project that you have already jumped into uh, called the Pinnacle Guides. Now, you've got to tell me where that germ of an idea started and where it is now. So the Pinnacle Guide, as a really quick elevator pitch, is a Michelin guide for the drinks industry. That's it in a nutshell. It's absolutely not where the conversation stops, but as a an opener, it's an amazing one. And we've got that in a press quote, so we use that quite a lot. We've been talking about it for years. So many people have been talking about it for probably more years than that. Michelin has just announced this week all their London uh, restaurants. It's fantastic. You can feel the buzz about it, every newsletter that comes through. It's amazing. And why why doesn't the bar industry have an equivalent. Of course, we've got really excellent global awards that are truly excellent at what they do. But what we don't have is a, is a star effectively rating, one, mm-hmm. two, three, star rating. So we have been noodling over this idea for, I don't know, how long now? Six, seven, six years, something like that. Yeah, a long time. It's been ages. And then... It's back to this again. It's like the joy, we're like the advert for COVID, but um, <laughs> COVID happened. <laughs> and we had a bit more time and we were like, well, if, and actually, did we have the name by that point? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, miles before that. We did, yeah. Yeah. We did. We had the name for a long time because um, we, we took the Instagrams and we took the web domain and all that sort of thing. So we're like, yeah, we'll do it. And it's that. And then like everything, you kind of get pushed. And then, like Hannah said, when COVID happened, our time freed up significantly. So we were like, all right, let's do that then. Got to do something. We weren't, we weren't doing like, weren't baking or knitting. <laughs> no, I didn't make a single loaf of bread. We was just, we worked every day of the pandemic. We just, we just got up and, and went to work in the kitchen. So yeah, we we just knuckled down and and really, I think you know it's it's again it's another one where so many people have come out of the woodwork and said, oh, we had this idea, oh, I started work on this, and it's like, yeah, yeah, but you started unpicking this as a process and how complicated this is and how many opportunities there are <laughs> for somebody to have an opinion. It's just enormous, but we felt. We were coming from such a place of care and kindness and rooting for people to do well. And actually, when, it, when you boil it down to that and then you have an intrinsic understanding of an industry, okay, just do a little bit and then do another little bit and do another little bit. And, and actually, you know, and it's still taking all of these years and we're still not fully launched to consumer. We are launched to the trade because we couldn't stand it any longer when people would say we've got an industry announcement and we'd be hiding under the desk thinking it was... We just felt that someone else was going to announce it any day. Every day we were like, today's the day. Okay. Someone else it's going to be now. Because it is, it, it seems so obvious, right? Like it's so, of course the bar industry needs its own version of the Michelin Guide. Of course someone should do that. And actually, whenever we say that we have done it, we've launched it, people are like, that doesn't exist already. We're like, no, it doesn't exist. They're like, oh, wow. Right, that's should. why we're doing like, it. Yes, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. As I said, the, once you actually get started on it, yeah. it's a minefield. 
but we're really well placed to deal with it because you know we've got more than a decade of experience dealing with more than 300 bars a, a year with the, with London Cocktail Week, lots and lots of different stakeholders, lots of different things to think about. And that level of organisation and thought from lots of people's point of view, I think has put us in a good place to be the ones to actually make it happen. Is it going to be London only to begin with or, uh, no. oh boy, the whole world? No. God, no. No. No, no anything, poor old London's going to do really badly out of it on principle because we're like, because we're really keen to make to to make sure that not only not our own city, but not even capital cities. This is this is a this is a true opportunity for venues anywhere in the world to be rewarded and awarded because. So, all right, here, here it comes. Ready? <laughs> okay, so first off, it's self nomination. So if you think that you are eligible, you could nominate yourself. So that's that. That's immediately taken out the need to have somebody there or, you know, get people there to view it. The second part that's a little bit unique is that the the review, so the, the submission process is one, actually it's two thirds, which we've done the maths on it today, is two thirds of the process. And the, the but the reviewing part of it, it will be completely anonymous reviewers and they will be local mm-hmm. to your area, therefore minimizing the need to get key people to key cities. And then secondly, they don't need to be industry names, hospitality professionals. They can be regular people with a care and passion for what we do, but they will do our training so they can then go in and verify a lot of the information that we've been given for these bars. So what we're hoping is that that neutralizes Lots of the things that some of these venues that are out in the sticks or in countries that don't get the same kind of press recognition. Yeah, that again, referencing your, your chat with the Alexes, you know, what they do, they're so amazing at what they do, but they're ba- they work in Paris and they, you know, they're capital city gals. And what about if you're not? What about if you're in Lyon or what about if you're in wherever? It, you know, there's a billion cities to name. But so yeah, that's what we're trying to achieve. So probably London is going to be way down the pecking order. Don't all think with favoritism. To be clear, it's not us judging either. Yeah. The other thing that we want to do with this is reward venues that are doing really good work behind the scenes as well. Obviously, we're going to be judging their drinks. Obviously, we're going to be judging how nice the bar is and how fun it is if that if it's meant to be fun or how nice their staff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All the obvious things. But actually, with the system that we've created, what we hope is that venues who display excellence with regards to their staff well-being, their environmental consideration, their operations and the streamlining of their operations, the DEI, all of those things that the consumer might not see, but that we know is increasingly important to the consumer, even if it doesn't affect their, their service that at the moment that they're sat at the bar. Our guide is going to measure those things too. A big part of that is this kind of pre-application process where we delve into the real integral workings of that bar and how it operates and what their values are and what what they do to be really good operators that have a really positive social impact. And that was really important to us because that's not something that exists in our world, but actually it's very different to how the Michelin guide operates too so it kind of 
made it feel like we were creating something unique and something for the future as well. I think that sounds fantastic. And I think maybe a lot of people people who aren't in the industry don't realize just how much goes into that glass. It's not just liquid and not just the creativity of the people who make that drink or the liquid that goes into the cocktail or the mixology or whatever you want to call it, but also what they're doing for the world. All of that goes into this drink. So it's it's really fantastic to hear that that's, that's part of it. There's just not also much platform to put that information out. So you might be doing all this great work in the background. Okay. You've got your menu that you can add a page to. You've got your website, I guess. You can add a tab to. You can make it part of your strategy of your marketing. But there's no, there's no space for all this stuff to, to really, for a bar to say, look at all this stuff that we're doing. Look how much care we're taking, you know. And good hospitality operators always care. They care so much about every level of what they're doing. And if we can take all of those bits and champion them for them, as part of the Pinnacle Guide, then that is, I mean, it's just such an honor for us to do that. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. So when can we see this guide? So we launched this whole endeavor to just the trade just over a year ago. And since then, we have been in what we call the consultancy phase because we felt that a decision on a guide that's going to be this impactful for the industry shouldn't just lie with a few people. We should give people the opportunity to have an input into how it should be as we're creating it. So we've had a year of the consultancy phase. We had six months last year where we ran fortnightly round tables on Zoom, the wonder of Zoom. And we took a topic and we discussed it, for example, how do you measure a world-leading drink program? How do you check whether a bar is caring about their staff well-being, et cetera, et cetera? We had 13 topics in the end. It was meant to be 12, but we added one in. We're now coming to the end of the consultancy phase. And in the next couple of months, we'll be announcing what we believe the criteria should be for measuring the best bars in the world. We have been working on that bit for the last six months. We had six months of roundtables. We've been working on this for six months behind the scenes. So yes, in the next month or two, we will be announcing what that criteria is. We'll be publishing it on the website. And people will then have a month to feedback and flag any concerns or tell us it's wonderful if they like. <laughs> or any any feedback that they have and they can do that on email or they can call with us or anyway, we welcome all feedback. Then we will be publishing the final criteria. And the bars will be able to start to apply. So that will be in the summer that bars will be able to start to apply. The process to then award a pin will take a number of months. And so we're hoping that the first pin will be announced in late autumn time. This year. So will it be a star system? Like four stars is the best? or It's a pin system. So pins right. for the pinnacle guides. One, two or three pins are the option. And what we're going to do is, unlike anything that's available at the moment, is that as a bar gets awarded a pin after the very in-depth assessment, we'll announce it. So we're not going to build up okay. and wait for kind of one big announcement of all the bars. We'll, have, we'll let each bar have its moment in the, in the spotlight when we announce the pin. So as soon as the first bar gets awarded, we'll know about it. 
So we're hoping that will be this year, which is really exciting. It is exciting. I guess it's going to be like, who's going to be the first, you know? I mean, <laughs> no. No, they might not apply. Yeah. Like, the thing, and, and we wanted to, if you want one, apply. And if you don't want one, don't apply. And that's right. really, really fine. Like, it, it's not mandatory. We often delay that about cocktail week. People are like, you're like, well, I came and I, and I, it was this. And so, well, you don't have to come as a Londoner. It's not obligatory uh, that you, that you can buy a ticket and come to the cocktail festival. It's the same for this. If you don't want one or you don't agree with it, for whatever reason, you don't want a feedback, don't do it. So we've no idea who will apply. We're launching in six or seven countries, year one, like straight in, got to go. Although it's going to be pretty self-regulating because if we get lots of lots of bar applications from a city or a town or a hamlet or wherever, we'll then find reviewers to go in, to go and do that. So actually, even though we're saying we're only launching in a few markets, to be honest, if if somebody, yeah, I, I kind of think we'd yeah. get on with it, really. Mm-hmm. But we've we've properly pulled the plaster off this now. So we're all in absolutely mind-bendingly overwhelming sometimes. But as I started out, it comes from such a place of love and care that it's like, well, we're doing it now. And we're, pr- we're proud of the work we've done. To be oh, my like goodness. The work we've done behind the scenes in the last six months. You know, it's, it's funny when you start something new. It's like those, those heady days of London Cocktail Week. When you're doing something new, you're like, oh, is it good? Is it good? And with this, we've, you know, we did another day of work on it today. And we feel really confident that it's really kind. It's really fair. It's really different to everything else that's there. And that it's going to be a really brilliant way for bars to have a chance to have a moment in the sun and to promote themselves. We feel really, really proud of it. So I never want to say, you know, if it, if it doesn't work out, then at least we know we've done our best. But actually, that is the case. We're so pleased with what we've done and, and we hope and we feel confident that when we release the criteria and the framework and the structure and all the detail in the next couple of months, that it will get a good response. Yeah, it. it's been overwhelmingly positive so far. People have been so kind and, you know, from all over the world. People we, you know, lots of people we did know, obviously, but even more people that we didn't know have reached out, got in touch and been like, I've been waiting for this. This is so great. They've taken the time. I mean, there's 13 hours worth of us talking to catch up on on the internet, uh, if anybody's interested. Um, <laughs> you know, and like to sit and c- to commit to that. I mean, we've committed to it. Obviously, we've got vested interest now, but so- there's some people they committed to every single roundtable and they bought energy and they brought good questions and like another thought process but I really actually this is makes this sentence very whole full circle the girl that runs Cayman Cocktail Week who we've known for years actually met her over in Mexico City randomly and anyway now so she runs Cayman Cocktail Week which Amber is has been so engaged as an example in this process it's then made us closer she's part of Cocktail Week Collective we're supporting her and her business partner Joe run Cayman, they support us. It's just, it's this lovely collaboration feel, which goes all the way back to everything we've ever done. It's just, it for us, it feels like the best way to work. So this consultancy phase has been heartwarming. Heartwarming, if not tough. If heartwarming, but horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it can't be anything but a success because... 
from the day um, you met in that trial by fire, but it wasn't even a trial yet. You're a uh, your, your meeting that Simon put you together. It was kismet and you just were <laughs> meant for success. Oh, thank, you. thank you. I cannot wait to see it. It'll be fantastic, I'm sure. Thank you so much for saying so. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Now, I always end with uh, the top tip for the home bartender. Now, I know you're not bartenders, but is there something maybe, I don't know, top tip for either happy to do the cocktail, but, you know, someone who might be thinking of starting a cocktail week? Oh, oh, the top tip for making cocktails at home is buy good ice. Okay. It's that really good, expensive party ice. It's, it's a whole pound for a bag here in London. I don't know what it is anywhere else in the world that's listening in. It's the best ice in the world and just don't scrimp on it and buy loads. That's our top tip for making drinks at home. Just to get yes. that one in the bag. All right, Siobhan, same thing? Yep. Got to be honest with you, I don't make cocktails at home because I prefer them being made for me. And often Hannah makes it for me, and often Jake the Burger makes one for me, and often in a bottle, and that's yeah. enough. I understand <laughs> that. Better, me too. I'm better, at, I'm better at opening a bottle of wine. It's my, really, really good at that. My forte really. It's going to be top tips for opening bottles of wine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, how about for is there a top tip for some other than call you? Yeah, number one. Number one is call you. Number two. It's so nice. We want to be phoned. That is your top tip. Call them. If you're listening and want to start a cocktail week, call them. All right. Just do it. Just just try. And don't try and copy something else. Look at your own city and your own cocktail scene and then do something that's appropriate to your scene. It doesn't need to be the same as another cocktail week. It doesn't need to be the same as ours. It could be a little bit the same as ours. That's totally fine. But think outside the box and think about what works for your city and your scene. Fabulous. Now, the final question. If you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be and what would you drink? Siobhan, why don't you start with this one? Well, we've just come back from two months in Central America. It's very nice time. We did, we wanted to avoid the winter, which we did not because looking at that <laughs> horrible, and we came back way too early. Um, but one of the things that we did while we were there was we went to tequila with Julio Bermejo and we tasted some amazing tequilas in lots of fantastic distilleries. And there was one moment in a tequila distillery called Atanasio where we tasted the most incredible rare tequilas and agave spirits. And if I could be anywhere this moment, I would be transported to that exact place and that exact time. And you, Hannah? Well, uh, I'm going with Shiv, just to be clear. Don't leave me out. Uh, Yeah, but actually, if we get two for one, you can come. Oh, yeah, okay. Good idea, good idea. We've found a loophole. I would like, if I could be drinking anything, okay. I'm very nostalgic. So I would like, do you know what? I'd go back to Milk and Honey. I'd love mm. to go back there. I did go to the closing night, which was bad. Yeah. I'd go back there and sit in the dark and drink a tiny, tiny little cold, ice cold drink. I'd do that. Also, we still hoot on about the Portobello Star, R.I.P. The most fun. It was like a six-form common room, except we were all far too old. 
probably could have had six form children by the point we were all still drinking in there. But that closed years ago. But that was, they were always really good fun. So if I can go backwards in the past, can I pick that? Yeah, you can pick anything you oh, want. Hey, yeah, then, then we'll rewind the clock and go back to when some of those places are open. And it should be about three o'clock in the morning and there's no, no one else in there. It's just, just us and the music got really lovely and the neighbors don't complain. That's fine. Oh, sounds great. Now, it's been such a joy to sit with you two and catch up and learn things that I never knew. Hopefully, I'll see you soon. Hope um, so. Before October, London yes, Cocktail please. Week. Yes. See you at the bar, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Hannah and Siobhan for being on the program. It was such a delight to finally hear their story and the origins of the London Cocktail Week. I'll keep everyone posted as to when the Pinnacle Guide is arriving on a shelf near you. Our Cocktail of the Week is one that both Hannah and Siobhan love. When asked for their favorite cocktail, both Hannah and Siobhan were quick to answer the wettish vodka martini. They said we always choose the same so the bartender can make both of them in one tin. So that's our cocktail of the week. Start by adding two and a half ounces of vodka, a half an ounce of dry vermouth, and one dash of orange bitters to a mixing glass. Add ice and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a chilled martini glass and garnish with a lemon twist. So there we have it, the wet-ish vodka martini with a twist. You'll find this recipe, more martini cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop. I'm writing a book, and I think it's the most difficult thing I have ever done. If you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and order a drink. The music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. On the next show, we'll be chatting with an Englishman in Ireland who is making not only gin, but rum. Until that time, bottoms up.